everyone, welcome to the show. You're listening to Everyday Sublime, and this is your host, Josh Summers. And as always, it's an honor and great pleasure to have your attention, and thank you for listening. In this episode, I am especially excited, especially happy to share with you a recent conversation I had with my very first Dharma teacher. And not just my first Dharma teacher, but this man, Rodney Smith, was is undoubtedly the most influential Dharma teacher I've ever met. I have found him as a teacher to have one of the most challenging, provocative, and passionate expressions of the Dharma I've ever encountered. And it is just a a real delight to be able to share with you um, a taste of Rodney here. Uh, He, just as a bit of biography, Rodney was a Buddhist monk early on. Uh, he went to Asia, he ordained with Mahasi Sayadaw as a monastic, eventually uh, moved over to Thailand where he worked with the Thai teacher Ajahn Buddha Dasa. I know over time he found his way to sitting with Krishnamurti, uh, sitting in audiences with Nisargatara Maharaj, two incredibly influential teachers in their own right. Um, so he has a broad range of exposure to different teachers, different practices, and I think that all of that, um, I think all of that can be heard in the way he articulates the Dharma. Um, as I said, it, he is really one of the most passionate uh, articulations I've ever heard. And one of the things I, that is communicated through his passion is that he really wants students or seekers to to really. Uh, taste and experience firsthand the liberative potential or the, liber- the truth of liberation in their own hearts. That's certainly what I got from him. Something in me cracked open my first retreat with him, and as I say, uh, my life has never been the same since, uh, and I'm deeply grateful for that. So uh, he's got a background. Uh, that when, he, when he came back from Asia after he disrobed, he, he worked in hospice work. He was the director of a hospice program. He became a guiding teacher at the Insight Meditation Society for over 30 years, and he was the founding teacher of the Seattle Insight Meditation Society. In 2016, he primarily retired, or or more or less retired. He comes out, it seems, every now and then and makes appearances and gives talks or leads a workshop here or there. I should say in the show notes, I link to an archive of his online talks and um, if you scroll all the way down to the bottom of that page, you'll see a talk that he gave called The Eye of the Storm. And that was the retreat that I was on. Um, I'm glad to see that, that talk still in the archive. I've listened to that talk on, on a cassette tape in my old Toyota Celica 20 years ago, over and over and over again. Um, very powerful talk for me. And I really hope you get a taste of, of um, Rodney's Dharma here. As I say, before we start taping, may this conversation be of benefit to many. And if you find that this conversation is benefit to you, or if you find inspiration from this conversation, please consider sharing this with a friend, texting it to them, emailing it to them. There's so many things we could text or email about now, but sharing the Dharma is costs nothing, and it really can enrich someone's heart. So please consider sharing this conversation with a friend. Um, please consider reviewing the podcast itself on your favorite uh, podcast app, whether it's Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. And thank you for your listenership. Thank you for your support. Uh, this is, I have to say, a real lifelong dream, or 
recent lifelong dream. It hasn't been my entire life, obviously, but um, ever since I've been podcasting, I've been dreaming for five years, I got to get Rodney on the show. And it took a bit, but here he is, and I couldn't be happier. So without further ado, I now bring you my first Dharma teacher, my Dharma dad, Rodney Smith. So today, I am honored to be with Rodney Smith. Rodney, great to see you. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. As I just mentioned before we started recording, um, I, I've been really looking forward to talking to you. I, um, for the audience, I want them to know that you really were the first Dharma teacher that I experienced on a retreat at the Insight Meditation Society with. And it was in the year, it was in the winter of 2001 when you were, I don't know how many years you, you were the holding down the new year retreat at the Insight Meditation Society, but there seemed to be a lot. It seemed to be a few decades. And I, and I was, I felt very lucky to be part of that time. And it was a very sacred part of my year that I always looked forward to coming back to. And in particular, it was, there was something I couldn't articulate, but there's something about the way you taught that seemed different enough from other presentations of the Dharma that I kept coming back to you. And so it's, it's with that spirit. I'm, I'm so delighted to have you here. And one of the things I remember at that time in 2001, which is timely now, is that our retreat was just after 9-11 happened. And people in the retreat were uh, palpably upset about things. And there was a lot of anger at leaders. And I remember you saying something. And if this doesn't feel accurate to your recollection, please correct me. But I remember you saying something on the, on the Dharma hall front stage saying, before you charge so-and-so or before you aim your wrath at somebody else, look into your own heart. And it, it really it brought up a lot of agitation in me because, you know, at the time George Bush was the president and he was bringing us to war in Iraq and I was so angry at him. And I thought, how dare Rodney tell me to look in my own heart when this guy's clearly in the wrong. And the reason I'm mentioning this, this anecdote is at the time of recording, we're now witnessing another horrible war erupt with apocalyptic potential. Um, I've been incredibly anxious ever since I heard it kicked into gear. And I've been having a series of conversations with Dharma teachers this fall about how does the Dharma address these kinds of cataclysmic, awful outbreaks. And having worked with you for a long time, I know you have something to say about this. I know you... <laughs> I know you have a lot to say about this. So I don't know if that's the, the best way of introducing the heart of your dharma, but I I do think I get a sense that you feel that our species is if if the species is to survive, it would 
necessitate an evolution of our collective conscious, our collective consciousness. And if I open that up, I know it's a big question, but we can, we can go start however you'd like, but how do you see the, how do you see Dharma practice and more specifically Dharma realization, the, the realization of the Dharma bringing healing to these conditions of our world? Uh, thank you for that question, Josh. That's a, I mean, that really uh, does bring us uh, front and center to the day's events. Uh, and it's not just the two wars that are going on simultaneously, both of which are uh, unimaginably horrible. But uh, it's also, it's a, it's, a, it's a question, a political question, because there's such divisiveness that's happening now. It's a climate question because forces are now hitting us that uh, we have no bearing on how to correct. And we may even be too late past tipping points that we could even correct. And we have immigration issues that are coming out from all of those different uh, side issues, and we have pandemic questions, and we have on and on and on. And it just seems uh, in my lifetime that it's reached a kind of crescendo that I've never experienced before. Uh, and I have no answers for it. But I do have a Dharma understanding for it. And I know that uh, the human immediate response is to side take uh, sort of a divide and conquer. And if you look over the history of the human race, that's, that's the impetus. That's the, that's been our motivation as a human species is to identify with our local tribes and to counteract influences and to obscure, obstruct, or demolish those that are in opposition. It's can't we can't keep doing that. We are a failed species on that ground. We have killed off many other species that we live with. We've killed off our own species, uh, and we are a failed species in that sense. And I can't think of another species that even comes close uh, to that uh, definition of being failed. But we have to, we have, there's something intrinsic now that we have to correct. And sometimes what I appreciate about the times is that you can't get out of it. There, there's not, you can't, you can't consciously get out or away from it. You have to take the whole thing on. And uh, for those of us who are old enough to have lived through the Vietnam War, I think there's a realization that the traumas that are going on may evolve into a new form of consciousness once those troubles have been have been met and uh, surpassed. And just as we can look back on the Vietnam War and say, you know, there was a shift of consciousness going on there, so too in this time, I think there's a shift of consciousness that's being forced upon us as a human species. And it doesn't look pretty. It never does because we're to shift our consciousness, we have to see ourselves within the consciousness we currently have as being failed, as having, having no answers for it. And then, because we come up against a dead stop, uh, we then 
have the opportunity to investigate other possibilities as a species towards our further evolution. So I think, I think in overall, that is maybe what is happening. And uh, some of us, a few of us, hopefully those who are listening to this broadcast as well as you and I, are of the mode that we will be willing to shift and change towards a greater expansiveness of inclusivity that this demands. But to get into that greater expansiveness, we have to simply shift consciousness. We have to get out of the enclosed, isolated, self-concerned consciousness we're in into a touch of the transcendent consciousness that's always available. So when I'm asked, and I was asked by a friend not too long ago to to offer a meta meditation of over for our times, I never um, I say cast cast it as an all inclusive event. All the pain, not just Israeli pain or Palestinian pain or uh, Ukrainian pain or any pain that's divided against itself, but the sum total of all the pain of all the occasions of the uh, climate shifts and the hurricane victims and those fire, you know, on and on, all of that, hold the entirety of that pain in, in vastness without explanation. as a totality, a summation of our heart's empathy, inclusivity. And be very careful when you come back down into your physical form and start expressing yourself that you limit the divisiveness of that speech, that you limit even your view of who's at fault and who's this and who's that, because it's the summation of all of that pain that is the leading edge of consciousness evolution. <clears throat> Just as quite likely we hadn't, wouldn't have gone through the slight shift of consciousness we all went through in the Vietnam War without the Vietnam War, and many of us, like myself, was very uh, in opposition to that. So too today, though, I have a broader sense of how this whole thing acts in concert towards that evolving consciousness. So that's the best answer I can offer. And it's an incomplete answer, and it's not a satisfactory answer because it doesn't point down into a single view or person or country. It keeps it universal. But that is the shift of consciousness in which we need to evolve toward. So let that I appreciate. I, I appreciate that. And... So just to reflect back, you spoke about the sort of the the long history of tribalistic psychology in that's been operative on the planet and all the de, the, the tribal destruction that that's brought. And mm. you spoke about in the in the example of the meta meditation that a friend prompted you to to, to give that rather than focusing on one side or the other to step back as, as big as your mind can to the totality of all the pain 
and 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 how that occurs, how that shift occurs to so that a mind can can wake up to that a sense transcendent unity of all of it and then reemerge or re reconnect from that in a way that I heard you saying things like checking or speaking in a way that doesn't reinforce or, 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 or perpetuate the ongoing cycles of conflict and, 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 and disharmony. It makes me think of a passage that I, when I read this, I thought of you, um, something that Carl Jung said when he was asked after the second world war, what is the fate of the species? And he said, unless I'm paraphrasing, but unless individuals become able to hold the oppositions within themselves, they will continue to project what they reject in themselves on the other, and then continue the, the cycles of ongoing violence and, and conflict. And I see the Dharma and largely through working with you on retreat as, as a means to allowing consciousness to open to those oppositions within, you know, when you said, don't, don't point the finger at George Bush until you look in your own heart, like to see the oppositions within oneself. Um, and, so I'd like you to, I would love to hear how you see the, the Dharma journey unfolding from roughly speaking, a dualistic subject object perspective into a, 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 the, a realization of unity, which, which with, with it comes the realization that the, the duality was the illusory problem from the beginning. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's the whole dharma story right there and uh so let me just um i think most of us begin where we begin very a uh, sense of self-isolation a sense of self-distance and and self-concern and we take on the dharma as a self-improvement project as trying to get this thing in order because we realize something's pretty intrinsically broken here it doesn't seem to fix itself. And we keep finding ourselves reacting in patterns over long periods of time. And we get consumed with uh, our self-image and on and on. But it's a, basically a self-concerning project that many of us are taking on. And uh, rightfully so, because we don't understand at all what's going on. So the very first time we sit down, we're as close as we'll ever be to the mystery of it all. In fact, it's sometimes, a, I always want to hear people who have just started sitting and they sometimes express themselves like, what's going on here? What is all this? What am I supposed to be doing? It's this wonder. You know, they're in a, they're in a different arrangement, uh, observing arrangement with their mind and they don't, they don't understand. They know something's going on. And they, they aren't sure how to work the levers and they're trying to get it so that they work it in accordance with what their needs are and all of that. Can I interject? So, Can I interject yes, for a second? Yes, please, please. Yeah. It, it, as soon as you said it, I was right back on my very first retreat with you. Um, I had done a little sitting up until that point, um, mostly a yoga type meditation. But 
it's a, it, to me, it's almost it, it was coming back. It's just like a dreamlike experience of like, what's going on here? What, where's yeah. that? Where's this thought? Right. Come, where, where's That's this energy? <laughs> what's this ghost coming from? And, <laughs> yeah. No, it's very much like that. You know, it's confusing. And so, there, but there needs to be some ground that we find. And so we usually develop a, a, an awareness that we call our witness or our mindfulness. And we start observing those things which have been compellingly driving us. And you get a, bit, a different perception of what it is that has been driving us and that we can hold it rather than just invest in it and play out the reactivity again and again. And so there's a there's something that's being learned there, but it's still self-contained. There's still me watching myself. And that evolution... Uh, is very helpful and perhaps essential for most of us, but we have to evolve out of it because it's still uh, self-focused uh, and it's still about me and me trying to improve myself so that I can have a loving heart or that I can have a quiet mind or I can be equanimous or all the other different ways. And we get lost in all of the different uh assets that we're supposed to have accrued over the time and some people call them the seven factors of enlightenment oh i'm missing this and it's like going on a spiritual um spiritual a spiritual boot camp uh, in a way where we're camp well you know i don't know if that's the word you're looking for but as you're speaking about it in this you know the, the practitioner that comes from a really the energy of self-therapy in a way and and like looking for less, less stress, less reactivity, more calm. And, and the practice of mindfulness is, is what is what the practitioner does. That's right. And I would just add to what you're saying there is that it's exhausting in yes, that, it's in exhausting. That, in yes. that there's a list of, you know, the Buddha has that list in the Satipatthana <laughs> Sutta of all the things to bring mindfulness to. And so you have your whole to-do list, and next to it there's a second list that says to do it mindfully. And every encounter of, or every recognition that you haven't been mindful enough becomes <laughs> the opportunity for self-flagellation. Right. Or it, well, the word I was trying to think is a spiritual scavenger hunt. You know, where you're trying to get pieces to you to make you f- feel complete and whole. And it never works because whenever you start a piece, you don't think it's good enough and you have to do more and there's never, there's never enough. And so at some point that way forward becomes, um, just a a drudgery. That's, that's the exhaustion I was speaking to. Exhaustion. Exactly. It's just, I just can't keep doing this. My, uh, point of exhaustion came after uh, many years of sitting at IMS early on and having the Mahasi approach from Joseph and then going off and ordaining in Burma with Mahasi Sayadaw and sitting there for five more months. And every day I would go to an interview and every day the guy would tell me I wasn't trying hard enough. And I was trying as hard as I could try. And it broke me. And I mean, it felt at the time like it was real damaging, but really it was, it was also extraordinarily opening because I knew I couldn't pursue Dharma on that path. 
of self-improvement and trying harder and will and effort, I was broken. Uh, and so then I left Burma and went to uh, Thailand, which was a very different, it was a forest Thai tradition. And it was just a very open living within the forest, living within. You know, and all of a sudden my mind found a way to journey outside of my self-containment into an interconnectedness through that living experience, but also through enormous amount of inquiry, just gentle. It was gentle. I wasn't mm -hmm. forcing myself to sit a certain on just gentle transformation that occurred. It I, took I, me into a different frame of reference. I want to come to the, the shift in energetic approach that you found in Thailand, but I also want to empathize and uh, share from my side I had a similar journey. I mean, luckily, and I, and I do say as a stroke of real looking back luck that I met you first, I met you first and I had practiced with you maybe two or three, four retreats before I took the journey to Burma myself and not Mahasi was no longer teaching, but Sayada Upandita, I was at his center and I got the same thing. I was trying my ass off and I would show up and be told, you're not trying hard enough. You're not, uh, you don't have enough respect. You're, 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 you're wasting the resources of the center here. And um, I, with the way you said it broke you, I, I can't say it necessarily broke me, but I feel like it, it did make me, it brought me to the point where I felt like, because you were in the back of my head most of the time saying, just relax, relax and let this, just this, hold, can you hold this? Um, and I, and I, I feel like in some ways my time with you saved me literally on that, on that, on that two month retreat. Um, and I'm grateful for the retreat, but it, it did. There was like the, the Olympics of muscular meditation and I couldn't do it. And when I came back from it, I fell completely apart and had to get in psychotherapy and, yes. um, so I, I, I never, I didn't know that about you. I didn't know that you had ordained in the Mahasi tradition, but um, that's very interesting in terms of the evolution and the direction you took your teaching, because I feel this similarly that the pain of my process informs how I would think about presenting or offering the teaching to somebody else. And um, I wouldn't want to reenact that, that, yeah. that, that, that form. Um. So you got to Thailand, though. You got to yes. Thailand. Thailand. I'm still a monk. You're still a monk, and you were uh, in the. T were you working with the Ajahn Chah lineage, or is it? Uh, no, it wasn't. It was Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was uh, a substantial teaching figure. But he didn't. Um, it wasn't. I wasn't so. In I wanted to be by myself. I wanted to go out into nature and not be compelled to chant and do all of the forms that uh, I felt. On the Ajahn Chah tradition, I spent some time with Ajahn Chah, mm -hmm. but that's, I just didn't land there. I, re I really wanted to self-explore. This had not been my journey up until now. This had been other people programming me and telling me what to do and sh telling me what the results would be if I did it. And so I had no sense of my own journey. And I needed to find and discover, and each one of us, each one of us needs that more than at some point to be uh, totally uh, self 
contained in terms of their own uh, uh, direction and speed at which they uh, uncover themselves. And so that's what those, and I spent three and a half years with Ajahn Buddha Dasa, and he left me alone. He just, you know, you'd eat one meal a day, you'd go back to your kuti, and you'd spend it the way you spend it. And some people would goof off. I wasn't. I was really using it in a correct alignment with what I wanted out of myself, wanted to see for myself. And so it was a, the, it, that, that's where the evolution occurred. Mm-hmm. Uh- I, the 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 theme that you mentioned just recently about the the, the importance of self containment. I'd like you to I, I, that's a that's a theme that I think would be interesting to open up because it's it's another word for, phrase I think might work is self reliance. Yes, but not in a like I'm going to go conquer it myself. No, not in a stubborn it, way. It, yeah, no, no, not not at all. And so it, it has to. Well, I mean, and let me just add, yeah. you know, there's because because there definitely is this. It's it's a cultural thing of, and, and you mentioned it in your book a little, of a cultural thing of relying on the authority of the teacher or the the text or the scholarly interpretation. I and, know, and and you, what I always receive from you, and it, and it's not something I can really articulate well because it's something that I could feel when I was in your presence in your teaching that you were you're opening me up to, to exploring something directly that di- wasn't referencing a, a, a doctrine or referencing a, an alignment with a principle of a, of a precept or something. It was, it was something just more fun, much more fundamental and immediate. And, and so it's, it's that interest in, in what you mean by self-contained that I, I think would be, because there's a lot of, sounding like everybody else kind of practice going on in a way like jazz musicians who sound like the other guy so much that they don't have their own voice. Right. Um, Well, it's an essential point and I don't mean it is self isolating. Uh, Self-containment means that you can tell me, you know, I, I, I seek out a teacher who resonates with me. I had many of them over the years, but I didn't take their wisdom as an absolute in me and then assume that I knew what they were talking about. I always wanted to plummet down and experience that as a realization rather than as a conceptual understanding. And so self-containment for me is never accepting other people's words as realized until one has actually experienced and intoned that experience within oneself. Uh, And that's what those years in Thailand did for me. I did. I said, okay, I know nothing about the Dharma. I'm starting from scratch. The first question I had is what's ignorance. I don't understand what ignorance is. What, why would, why would I be running for what, what's the, what's the problem with ignorance? You know? And I said, okay, I'm not going to answer this by looking it up or, you know, getting a definition or finding out what other people said about it. And so I just was quiet with, okay, what is ignorance? What, what am I doing? that I'm not realizing what I'm doing. What is it that I'm, that is just a conditioned response, which I then call my ignorance, as opposed to some fundamental realization that is the opposite of ignorance. And I, so I flushed it out. I got it so that I really understood where this thing goes and what it means to be ignorant and to be 
to bring awareness and aliveness within that activity other than just the conditioned response. And, and so I just, that's how I did it. And I remember uh, going to a, a, a monastery uh, outside of Ajahn Buddha Das's as a sub monastery on top of a hill and spending uh, about uh, several months on top of this hill in this little cave. And I was just like, insights were just coming. Sometimes you see these big auditoriums at night with flashbulbs, you know, all over the, that's the, that's the kind of insight. I was just having like just an amazing, because I was so open. I was so naive and I was innocent and I was really, I just, I wanted it to know, you know, and so this curiosity factor in me has been a big component of that self-containment. It wasn't, the need to know wasn't coming from other people telling me this is what you should know. It was coming from me wanting to know, which is a very different way of approaching a subject than I should learn this, you know, this, that's a pushing, you're getting pushed into the Dharma. I was being pulled into the Dharma by my own curiosity. And that's what I really mean by self-containment. And those insights, um, it sounded like at the time that they were happening, you were you were in isolation up in a, did you say a mountain cave? Yeah. Yeah, and assuming you didn't have much to read there. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I did take a Krishnamurti book. <laughs> okay, we can come to that. Um, I guess my question is then, have you? Did you ever go back and look at? Did you find texts where you where you found the insights on the page and maybe someone else's language? Yes, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I have books that, uh, two books in particular that I uh, I read for insight. I would read something and and there was it was so I was so attuned to what they were saying and how they were pointing it out that I had an insight from the reading itself, and that became a, a, a an important way to access further uh, growth and further expansion of my uh, realization. Uh, and so I don't I'm not saying that you can't learn from other people. That's not at all. I just don't accept. I don't write it down as a conceptual fact until I know it to be in me, you know, as an understanding. And then it's a different kind of profundity than, than just the memory factor. So I guess I think this would be a good time to maybe tack into or explore into your, your, your teaching itself, the, the methodology that w- w- makes me say – Rodney teaches differently from a lot of other people I've worked with and met. Um, for the, the, if I were to maybe prompt you, I'd say the, the, the piece that I really took from you over and over again was stepping out of the self that's doing the practice. And and that wasn't that was that sounds that's very easy to say. <laughs> that that's been an ongoing wrestling match. Of course, it has for the that's, rest of your life. Yeah. Okay, so this is really the essence. Okay, at some point, I said, "Okay, I need. Where does this go? Where is this leading me? I'm not going back into myself and and self beautify or 
self-help or, you know, self-care and all the different self-concern. I mean, the Buddha's anatta, selflessness, came up to me. And there was a natural questioning of, uh, what is this thing? What, what is it that's driving all this? Who am I inside here? You know, and so that was the, that was the uh, a legitimate question in the evolution of myself outside of myself. So let me explain that what I first had to do was establish where the meditation was going in essence. And it came to me that everything that the mind was doing wasn't ever going to take me there because the mind creates the images of what it sees. It is not the essence of what it sees. The essence of what it sees is is the essence of all of life. And that essence is timeless. It's simple. It's com- um, immediate. It's wondrous. I mean, you could. there are a bunch of qualities that fit perfectly within the description of transcendent meditation as opposed to self-care meditation. So these, all these qualities are intrinsically empty. They don't contain me within them. And when I started watching how I interfere with those qualities, that I live on time. I mean, I, I, the sense of me is time. I know myself from the past of what I've been and the future of what I hope to be. And that, that is, those images create the sense of me in progression. Uh, and I can compare what I have been. I look forward to what I'm going to be. And then I get caught in my conditioning on and on. So I say, that doesn't work. It doesn't, you know, that the sense of me is an interference to the timeless that I know is intrinsic to the essential nature of reality. So the sense of me in time as time must somehow be seen through. And I don't mean uh, dismissed or or a suppressed, or I mean understood as a concept. I am a concept. I am a time-induced concept. And I actually realized that fact so that when I get in a hurry, I stop because I know that's programmed conditioning. And I stop and I just, now, now is timeless. Now is timeless. So I meet that conditioned forward movement with the timelessness that I know is the truth. And you begin slowly to disbelieve yourself. And I don't mean it in any kind of negated way. You just don't believe in yourself the way you used to believe in yourself when you believed you were in and of time. And time is just one component, conceptual component of how this thing is is falsified. And as I started moving, I started getting self thinner. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't losing weight, but the sense of self-concern naturally becomes trans it's becomes transparent. It's not as important to do what I want to do and to have my way and to be it was more okay, so that you know other things get through light gets through. <laughs> And when light gets through, the heart expands in accordance with that. And you know, know your way. You know your way. You, I see where the Dharma is taking me. 
I'm willing to allow it to occur at its own time and pace and not going to rush it because that's just being of time. And yet I'm going to let myself be compelled that way, which is the heart's true intention towards completion. And I just move in accordance with those more inner directives rather than the outward conceptual directions that were driving me before. Does that make any sense? It makes sense. I, 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 I'm imagining, um, now again, I, I just, for the audience sake, I have listened to hours of you and I've listened to hours <laughs> of your talks re- on repeat, as I said, on cassette tapes when I used to drive around in my car after the retreats we were, on, I was on with you. Your phrase, a time-induced, I am a time-induced concept. Is that, was that how you put it? Yeah, yeah. Love that phrase. I am a time-induced, because it, you're right. It, it, that just carries with it the pressure, the pushing, the squeezing, the, the, the sense of inadequacy, the incompletion, the, the, the lack. The desire, desire. Think what desire is. Desire isn't what you have now. It's what your expectation is going to be. See, it's time-induced. The Buddha said, suffering and desire, those two are why they're associated somehow. And that's time. Fear is time. Fear, I'm not afraid of what's happening now. I'm afraid of what's going to happen, you see? So we bring these catastrophic uh, mental states like desire and fear into our time-based existence and then live in accordance with being afraid or being attracted to or being repulsed by, all of that has nothing at all to do with the intrinsic nature of reality. It's mind reality. It's mind-imaged reality. I don't know. I don't want to talk. No, no, no. no, 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 That's perfect. Beautiful, 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 beautiful. Um, There's a few things I'd like to to tie together, if I may. I think you shared this once on retreat that Ajahn Buddha Dasa, and forgive me for not remembering that 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 was your teacher. I do remember it now. That he was asked once, to describe the world. And he was a humble man. I don't think he ever left the region of Thailand that he was from. Um, And in three words, in three devastatingly simple words, he described the world as lost in thought. That's right. So. You see that? You see how thought, the word, a word is time? You see, we've invested in it because we know it. We know this is a class. How do I know that? Because I'm bringing my memory forward and covering the image of what it's the unknown and mysterious quality of it with what I know it to have always been. And it doesn't have to look like this for me to know it's glass because I extrapolate anything that has this kind of figure as glass. And now my whole worldview is filled with my time orientation and my knowledge base about everything I know, a house, a tree, a donut, everything. And so I am also word-based. The sense of I is not only time-based, but it's word-based because time is invested in word. This is very synchronistic uh, that you're saying it like that. I Last night I was doing some journaling about practice and preparing to talk to you and was reflecting on literally the Mahasi technique of late mentally noting yeah. experiences. And the phrase it was, I, you know, as I journal, I'm just listening for the ideas. And the, the idea that came was something like 
all noting of feelings, all noting of mind states is retroactive poetics. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> no, I, I thought it was... Better. You had better phrases than I do, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it's, it was the muse. It was the muse. It just came to me. But it, it, it's it, in the sense that... And the part that I want to come back to is the timeless, but um, in the sense that to tr- to conceptualize through language the immediacy of experience is always a retroactive. You're always oh, past, right. you're already past it and trying that's to cap right. back to it that's and, right. and, and, and trying to that's seize right. it. And I, I I know that practice was benefit to many, but it 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 no. it, it didn't bring me to a taste yeah. of the timeless and yeah. So that's uh, this is where I want to come back to was if I am a time induced concept, how does a meditator open to the timeless? Well, first you have to get a feeling for the fact that you are just that. You can't do it in retribution. You know, you can't do it as a as a reaction to oh my god, I might be a timeless. You got to really see it. And then the seeing of it has a, an impartiality to it, has a love to it. I mean, you aren't seeing yourself in disgust. You're seeing yourself as, a, as, an, open, as an open case, as something that you've spread out now. And you think, oh, wow. I, and you have, believe it or not, you have love for yourself. And you think, okay, so this needs to be fixed. I'm, I'm broken here. And, it's not, and it can't be done through me. It can't be done through my effort. Now, this is extra, because this is the last vestige of carrying yourself forward in your practice when you think you can do it yourself. It's not through your will, not through your effort. Okay, so now what do I have? I have nothing. I have nothing. I can't, I can't do anything. I mean, you really have to come to the sense of being helpless, but not helpless in the sense of Oh, despondent. It's like, I can't do this. Now, Josh, just follow this because we're very close here, even as we speak it. If you're helpless, you stop. You see? And when you stop, it opens. Formless awareness, transcendent, transcendence is there when we have stopped, when we have stopped the sense of self. And it's not through force of will or I'm going to, or it's not some, some uh, admonition, you know, I'm, it's not, doesn't come from that level of conditioned response an avoidance. It comes from, there's nothing I can do. Even when I say it, I, you feel it. And then there's something, you see? So now I know my way. It's not through my own compulsion or need to fix. It's through the, seeing that there's, I have no other choice but to stop. And that's, the culmination of stillness, simplicity, timelessness, immediacy. And that's transcendent awareness. Now that's very different. 
than how we usually get involved with ourselves with awareness because we are behind the person who's watching whatever it is we're seeing. The watcher of the experience has this coding of I and the images of I onto what it sees, and that's called mindfulness. And that has value. It just has a limitation because you're still around governing what you see and having opinions about it. And that has to end in order for this other thing to open. Could you could you drill into that with with a com- maybe a comparison contrast to say how? And I'm not asking you to to denigrate any mindfulness teacher out there, but no. how does mind like mindfulness as it's commonly taught would give people instructions to watch their breath or notice right. that minds have wandered to let right. it go and um, you know try not to be right. judgmental. <laughs> It's like right, that. right. Yeah. Um, Try and, not to be judgmental. You're already judgmental in that. <laughs> well, you know, in, in some certain sense, mindfulness is a judgment. It is. No, no. You have. Okay, go ahead. I don't want to interrupt. No, no, you. no, no. You can interrupt. But, but then, so, and so that's the. I think so many people are familiar with these kinds of yeah. instructions. Yeah, you have to find the end to that. Yeah, and. Okay. There is a way. You see, I wanted to be, I, I wanted to use what I had learned. I knew that what I was learning, there was a purity in it. It just wasn't completely pure. There was, it was taking me. All right. So let me just back up a minute. Anytime I read Buddhism, I never read it. I, I always kept, I kept it as a scaffolding. I didn't want to know the details of how everything was decorated and how truth looks like this. And, you know, you shouldn't do that. I didn't want all that stuff. I just wanted the scaffolding. And as I got more realized into what the scaffolding did and how it existed within myself, the conventional teachings went to the hidden teachings. It sunk down. And now I started hearing the subtlety of of the hidden teachings, I'd call them secret, but they're not really secret. They're just hidden behind the conventional overlay of commentaries, centuries of commentaries and explanations and all of the ways that we, we live within the history of the teaching rather than the aliveness of the teaching. But at some point that I, I wanted, I, I got in touch with the hidden teachings. That's what stepping out of self, uh, not, uh, Touching the infinite. Touching the infinite. <laughs> Touching the infinite is. It's the hidden teachings behind the four foundations of mindfulness. It it doesn't negate the conventional teachings. They can they serve people fine. It's just that they don't go all the way. They don't tie themselves together as a as a seamless movement towards the formless. And, uh, and so that that's what I started to to, to um, understand was that whatever instructions I could see I could get I could get if I was just quiet enough I could come down to how they were serving the transcendence as well as the individual and his or her needs that they went deeper than the individual into the into the um, the uh, common consciousness of human beings. Uh, so now I forgot what you you asked, but <laughs> but you I think you got it. It was a question of how how do how does a self a time induced self experience the timeless? Um, and I what I took is through stopping. Yes, right. But but to stop to to really stop, and I think this spoke this, you spoke to this with your own biographical sketch, and to a certain degree, 
I've experienced this and I, I want to, but that the, the, the practice in some ways will operate within the paradigm of a self-induced practitioner or time-induced practitioner until the, the burden and the frustration and the uh, lack of fulfillment brings the person to a precipice of beautifully said helplessness. Did I, did I capture you? Yeah. yeah, absolutely, Josh. You're saying it better than I did. Um, well, I've, I've had a lot of practice listening, <laughs> but the, the no. but the, the helplessness is is that's going to be a, a, a. I know what I know what you mean from the heart. Right. I can hear someone listening to that and saying, "I'm supposed to be helpless and and let something you know run over me." Or <laughs> okay, so let me let me okay let me back up to because we were talking about mindfulness and the limitation of mindfulness, and I want to show that within our tradition and Theravada or Insight tradition, there is an escape mechanism from that watcher. So this is this is how it worked with me, is that, okay, so I was watching everything, and I started to notice that, really, I no matter what I did, I had vague and subtle opinions about what I was seeing, and I had... I was reacting, and those were really remaining unconscious in the watcher who was watching what I was supposed to consciously be seeing, okay? So I said, wait a minute, I'm missing a lot here by not seeing the commentary of the watcher as part of the mind. It was me outside of the mind watching the mind. But I, the sense of me as the watcher, is the mind. And so then I lined up the watcher within the mind I, I don't know if this is understandable, but I just, because of time, I can't go too deeply into it. And so the watcher became watched, became seen, not by another watcher, but by awareness itself. I'd come to the end of what the watcher could do, and I was picking up the subtle commentary of the watcher, that quietude that heard the watcher is no longer the watcher. It's outside of the watcher, being seen. Then I had various dramatic insights in which awareness was seeing me. And not it wasn't me seeing awareness or having the experience of awareness. It was awareness having the experience of me. And it was, that sounds twisted and kind of weird, but it freed me from myself. It was another expression of freedom from myself that I needed in order to bring the practice home from the insight tradition. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that that little riff you had there on the stepping out of the watcher awareness, watching the watcher, that that's a subtle one. That's a really, it's a very subtle one. So so, so are you saying that the, 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 the watcher that you established in, in your practice of mindfulness you started to see that that watcher had its own opinions or its own little subtle commentary. And, and, and then it sounded like there was a, a moment or a, a series of moments or a, a period of time where that whole orb of and mode of knowing was you were, you woke up out of that. That's right. It, it, it awakened itself out of that. I didn't awaken it. It, Awareness, since I knew, I mean, when you start listening to the watcher as more commentary, 
like you're listening to thoughts, except now you're listening to the thoughts about the thoughts. You're at a dead stop. See, it took you to a dead stop. I, where do I go now? Where do I go? Well, I can't hide. I'm seeing, I'm seeing where I am, you see? And all I am is more commentary on what is. And if I'm just commentary, what is hearing the commentary? Because I can hear it. It wasn't me that was hearing the commentary. That, that, that logic doesn't come all just like that. You, after you see it for a number of times, you go, oh, there's just watching. There's, there's no watcher. There's just watching. I, I, I heard someone else describe it once. It was in a book. The, the watcher and the watched collapse, and there is just watching. The observer yeah. and the observed collapse, and yeah, there's observing. That's a nice way of saying it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, and that, I was, the thought I had too is that um, people may not be as lost in listening to this as we may think because of the renaissance of psychedelics now. And I think yeah. some of the psychedelic experiences, you know, the deep end can, at least for me, uh, did bring me to something where I felt like I woke up to something that was observing myself. Um, yes. But, but it wasn't, there was no division. It was, it was, it was a unity experience. Beautiful. Beautiful. With, that is a unity experience. There's no division. That's, but see that even, I don't care if you've had it in psychedelics or if you have it in meditation, you know it now. I mean, it's not, it wasn't, some figment of your imagination, you experienced it, whether it was drug induced or whether it wasn't drug induced, it doesn't. The fact is that etched in your, etched on your wisdom is that fact. And you're never going to be able to fully go to sleep again. That etching of the glass will keep catching your attention. And the, op you just, the operative word there, fully asleep again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So look, this is, we've had this lifetime. And if you believe in lifetimes, many lifetimes of compelling ourselves forward with thought, it's not going to turn over and play dead. You're going to, we're going to have to live with this and we're going to have to be patient. I mean, these words have some meaning in terms of how we handle the situation of our, of our journey forward into the absolute. And that sense of patience is timeless. It's like, I'll, I'll, there's nothing I can do. I mean, it's again, you've stopped. It's a stop. I can't go backward. Like, there's no going back. Okay, so I don't, I don't, I feel frustrated in going forward, given the fact that I'm, you know, this sense of self keeps coming back. But what, okay, I only have one way to go. So you just, you see, the patience is a stopping in and of itself. You know, I'm having flashbacks to my first retreat with you, um, and I could, you know, the first several days were a lot of labor and a lot of time-induced uh, stress, suffering, feeling like I had to show up. I was resentful for all the sittings and the walking and no breaks and and and, and I apologize, Josh. No, no, no. I'm just. I'm. I'm internally grateful. Um, <laughs> And I, and I really think it, take it as a, as a stroke of luck that I'm, I was with you because you were just as you're speaking now, talking to the, the, the inevitable limitations of that paradigm. So, and I, something happened to me then. And so I just want to, I'm trying to paint the picture that I was in 
I was in a slogging misery. I was slogging along miserable. And I want to say by the fifth night, sixth night, you know, people had gone to sleep and I thought, I'll just go sit. And suddenly I, I, the sitting was, there was zero friction, zero friction. And I wouldn't say I had this, I wasn't awake outside of the washer yeah. at all, but there was just, it was this experience that maybe one of the first times in my entire life, probably that's the case, the very first time in my life where I was not in a state of conflict with well, the immediacy of what was beautiful. happening, but I wouldn't have said that until it happened. Like until right. that, until I got to that point or to that right. experience, I had no right. idea to the degree that I was wrestling with every goddamn thing I was right. ever experiencing. That's exactly right. All day long. Right. And, it's amazing. And so, I, and, I, and, I, and I don't want to say that to speak about that as a, you know, a, you know, a goic achievement, because it's not it, but to your point about the heart, um, I was also in those early days very aware of my views and opinions and judgments of 98% of the people on the retreat in frustration. Like, I don't want to be like them. I'm never going to practice like that. This is look, that's a disgrace. <laughs> and from that night until at least till the end of the retreat, I felt this unrecognizable affection. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. And, but I've gone around that cycle multiple times. Of course you have. Okay. And that's, that's the part that I would like to maybe home yeah. in on now a little bit is yeah. the, the, there's a certain sense of expansion and yeah. feeling like, Oh, this is it. And, and as I feel like yeah. you would say, do you see, it's, it's just, it's here. It's, this is it. Yeah. And, and then I go home and, and it's not it. And it's not it. And it's, I'm, I'm, I'm back in time induced coma. <laughs> Right. trying to no. find, find it again going back on retreats coming off retreats <laughs> and and I, I so i'd like to hear how do, how does this what for you it sounds like you had this big insight it sounds like you had an awakening moment i know that's kind of gauche to talk about but i i you know i i've always appreciated that you spoke directly about awakening and i got the sense that you definitely felt and knew what you're talking about but how does from that awakening, I mean, I think Adya Shanti talks about people fall, sort of falling back into orbit of the self or something like that. Can you talk to that that part sure. of the, the dynamic yes. and and what comes up yeah. in that? Well, that, you're you're now addressing what is traditionally called the dark night of the soul. You know, where you've seen something and yet you're not there, and it feels uh, completely obscured as to how to get there, and it feels like you're just living out your old life having had a vision and an ex and an, uh, an acknowledgement of what the direction really takes. And so uh, in the fourth foundation, and I just want to encourage people to read it with not the conventional way, but the hidden way. The Buddha says in the fourth foundation, you know, when you see things coming up, apply his teaching to what it is that's coming up. Oh, those are the four factors. Now, that does, that's conventional understanding. That is not my understanding. Why would you want to talk to yourself about what you see to create more commentary and be more distant and separated within that commentary? Can I, can so I, that's not, yeah, can I, can yeah, I just give a little context for the listeners too? So you're talking yeah. about the four, this very famous sutta, the Satipantana Sutta, the four foundations yes. of mindfulness, yes. where there are four main domains or categories of experiences or 
frames of reference right. that the Buddha is saying, pay attention to this stuff. It's important. Right. And right. the first everyone's familiar with is the body. The second is feelings, which is a subtler part. And then there's the mind, which is the third. But this fourth one is the, the translation of the categorization there is often sometimes referred to as ultimate realities or the, the essential right. teachings of the Buddha. Right. And I just want to say right. the fourth one is often has these lists. So there's the five, yes. the, the, uh, yes. are yeah. the hindrances, the hindrances are there. The seven factors Hindr of awakening. That's right. That's the, right. The, the clinging aggregates, the, <laughs> the four noble truths. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So there's, yeah, but the, yeah, and you're to keep them all in mind. <laughs> right. And what's this now? What are you feeling? Are you feeling a hindrance or you, you know, it's like, that, that that's crazy making. No, you see, I think that all four of those foundations flow together seamlessly, and I'm, I'm start, starting at the end because the questions we're discussing now is is so. If you take the Buddhist teaching and distill it to one word, you take the all of his teaching. He's talked for fifty years or something, and distill it down to one word. Let go, surrender. Release. Cling to not is how it's traditionally talked about. That's, that's what, you see, when you're back in yourself, you're clinging somewhere. It's not, you're not in damnation, you're in self-desiring form. So that comes, okay, so just releases, just relaxes, just relax. It takes you back to stopping. That takes you back to stopping if you follow the other three uh, foundations to this point. You see, the other three foundations create the wisdom necessary for the release to occur in the fourth foundation. And each one, there's a hidden teaching within each one of those foundations. Now, if you want to go back and be noisy and talk about, oh, that was a hindrance and this is a a factor of enlightenment, and, oh, that's desire, and that's a four noble truth. You can do that. You're just going to be very noisy and very yourself. Spiritually, you're going to be very spiritually yourself because you're keeping the spirit, the text alive in you, but you're not going to be free. <laughs> I guarantee you. <laughs> now, if you take it from where, okay, this is release. Just, okay, okay. And believe me, we all get lost in our, now you just say, okay. you see, once you've accessed stillness, you know how to ascertain, you know how to reconnect with it. And you just, okay, back to zero. There's no other way to go. There's no other place to go. There's no other direction. I mean, what, what other direction are you going to except stillness? I mean, if you... If the words have caused this manifestation misaligned and antagonistic and all of the conflicts and discords, then being still is the remedy. It's the, it's the, it's the access. Stillness, transcendence, selflessness, formlessness, formless. I think those are all sim, uh, synonyms. What do you call them? Similes or whatever you call them. All interchangeable synonyms. Yeah, synonyms. Synonyms. <laughs> <laughs> and when you were using the word transcendent earlier, or even selfless, 
I, I, I want to try to listen in as someone listening from the audience that would think, might think transcendence means something outside and beyond this. There's something transcendent to this. And I'm just, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm setting up the, yeah. the, the, the straw man. You're, so, you're definitely <laughs> setting me up. <laughs> and selfless, selfless is just an absence of self. No, no, I don't use, I don't like the word emptiness because it's misinformed. It's, I'm not drawn to being empty, but I am drawn to the wonderness, wonder, to wonder, to mystery, to the incomprehensible. See, there's something in us that the incomprehensible, the inconceivable attracts us to. And it's not empty. It's just not explainable. You just can't conceive of it. And so when you enter into all these words, stillness, timeless, selflessness, you're not empty. You're not getting out of yourself, so to speak. That that journey has, you can remember who you are. You can tell your birth date. You're not going to be uh, like, like a child who was just born because we do have a self. It, we're, there's a self-concept that's still there. You just don't believe in it as being truly the center of yourself. And so these words are not words of leaving yourself. They're the words of non-attachment to self. And what lies side by side with that non-attachment is the fullness of our being. And the fullness of our being sometimes necessitates that I come forward and know what this is so I can use it correctly. And that requires my knowledge back into this. So those the the formless and the form rest in compa- completely compatible paradoxical ways. You think it's paradoxical or in opposition, but they're not. They live in complete coordination and synchronicity to one another. So you can be yourself. I mean, my character is definitely coming through. <laughs> Just much so. to the <laughs> save your emails but that yeah no 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 no. There, there won't be any emails don't worry it's not that it's not that kind of audience at all <laughs> but that yeah that um as you're speaking i, I thought so the, the the way i was thinking just the thought occurred to me that a, a, sen- a one sense of self is often pursuing activities to bring meaning. I have I have to do this because if I don't do that, then what will what will I become or who will? And, yes. And I have a sense that the the transcendent, selfless awakening you're describing, and with the heart heart component of that. Is the only thing that I have t- tasted or touched that has brought me even close to sensing a sense of meaning and purpose, and I think that's there's a there's a crisis of meaning now, and and so th- is that your do you have that did you do you, when you had these awakenings yourself did it did did your own did the the flow of your life suddenly have imbued with like maybe a deep mysterious ink inarticulate meaning uh, so i let me answer that uh by um usually uh 
we think of life, we have an internal life, and then we have, there's the external life. And we think of those as being divided. You know, the life I live and the life I am are two different lives. They're two different things happening. And that's what causes us to have a lack of meaning and purpose because we feel incomplete because we separated our life from the life. And as long as that's separate, we're trying to discover or bring meaning in from the outside in so that our lives feel complete. But once we no longer have that division of lives inwardly and lives out and a life outwardly, those two come together in complete um, synchronicity, simpatico, where there's no there's no sense of loss of meaning there's no that the word meaning doesn't mean anything and i don't mean that to be cryptic it's really not feeling it's feeling complete what we've always tried to get through our meaning is some sense of completeness in ourselves but when those two things the life in us and the life outside of us merge as a single inexpressible essence then meaning doesn't really have a point. It's not that everything everything has its own meaning instantaneously is another way of saying. It's like people saying, are you writing books now? I said, no, I'm not writing books. Well, what are you doing all day? Well, I'm not really doing a lot. I mean, you know, I wash dishes. And and they say, well, do you have any meaning? I said, a full, full day, everything, every minute, every moment is fully meaningful. And I really mean it, but it's not based upon an activity or an acquirement or a project that I'm finishing. It has its own intrinsic sense of worth. Now that, like many things I'm saying, can't really be experienced until the fullness is being is experienced. But trust that you're not driven any longer to find your sense of completion somewhere external to yourself that becomes intrinsically your own. That's, I think that's the, that's the hill ahead of me. And that's still, I can, I can still feel that. And, you know, and it's, it's yeah. interesting to hear you speak about that. Like, because I can, I can definitely feel the, um, I, I let my life change radically during the pandemic. And I, I, I sort of fa- fancy myself living a bit like a, a forest hermit. Now I moved to Maine and, and, um, but, and I'm just amazed in the few years that I've been here that there's still this, I thought I'd come here and there would be this unburdening of time and, and pressures and I'd be able to, but it's still rolling along. <laughs> um, Don't begrudge that, Josh. Those are, those are the irritants that move us forward. You know, you can, well, you, you, you're already having, you have more consciousness about those events and the toll they're taking on you than you did 10 years ago. True. And that 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 rubbing, although it feels hard at the time you're going through it, leads to a kind of a crescendo of wanting to stop. Mm-hmm. And it does, it it is, it's a quid pro quo. You gotta go through that in order for. It. Uh and it it does work that way. And uh even for um even with different uh, stages of awakening. There's still parts of yourself come forward that are being unlocked from your repressive uh, psyche uh, that you never wanted to see. They come up. 
you don't have the defense mechanisms you used to, and they come up and they come up in lividly. You know, they're not little, oh, I remember wins. They're like, ah, like that. And they really shock you. And you, you, what, the only thing you've got now is to understand it. Okay, let me see where this is coming from. Some things just don't pass through. Some things you've got to go down and explore the, the, um, the dialoguing that took place at the time you were being abused or whatever it is. And I'm not suggesting you don't do this with a skilled therapist. Many of us need that skilled therapist to help us move through it. But those things don't go away until they're understood like everything else. And so all the parts of ourselves have to be eventually, and that's what takes so damn long is that these things keep coming up and you think, God, you know, it doesn't, this it's like a, you know, a jack-in-the-box that just pounces out. Of the <laughs> so, I mean, it sounds like you're, you're talking about sort of what Jung might myself call... Myself. talking about myself, but shadow, shadow material. Things yeah, that you, shadow. you wouldn't have yeah. thought that was there. No, uh, no. And, you've forgotten. You might have had a sense of the memory as it's cast back into to the drama of it, but you might have forgotten it, you know, and it's there. It's locked into the cells of our body. And so that that shadow effect is very much a component part of awakening. We awaken to the shadow. We bring light to the shadow, and that's how. That's how. So the it takes a while. I mean, you know, years. So we're not talking about just a. But you, and, and not to put this too linearly in time, but you can imagine that, or I can imagine that, someone has a significant experience, taste of transcendence, or significant taste of unity and then month or two months later suddenly they're completely caught off guard by some strong anger reaction or a feeling of shame or uh being told that from somebody that you care about that your behavior is really problematic and then you're getting disagreeable with them about that and you're back in the sort of the, the, the machination of self-induced suffering um but you have a you have an advantage now because you know intrinsically that that's meaningless you see once you've experienced the transcendent you never fully believe in yourself again it doesn't mean you're repressing or denying it or not fully embracing what it is that's arising but the belief of that actually being who you are is not there anymore and so you can, you can, yeah, I'm, I'll go anywhere I find troubles intrapersonally or in my, you know, psychologically, because I know that ultimately it's empty. And I don't like that word, but it's not, it's not, a, it's not my definition anymore. And so there's a safety in that exploration that wasn't there before. The last thing we want to do is go to where we really believe ourselves to be. Those are the hot spots of our psyche. The, the, uh, there's something wrong with me, or I'm inadequate, or, you know, in this culture, it usually has something to do with being insufficient. And we'll play around that. We'll see all our behaviors that come from that, but we don't want to go down into that feeling itself. And so you have to, but you have to. So you, you just, so you welcome it. You, you, I mean, I have a whole 
number of ways I work with people around those major trauma points. But essentially, you've got to understand it. You've got to let it air itself out from the cells that hold it encased. And that requires awareness, requires relaxation and ease and just being curious about it. In relationship to that dynamic, the phrase spiritual bypassing popped into my head. And there's often a sense that spiritual bypassing isn't supposed to be something you should do. You shouldn't spiritual bypass. Spiritual bypassing is a spiritual mistake because you're avoiding something you're trying to do an end run around a pain or a problem and i'm curious what you think as a teacher for the number of years that you've been teaching and all the i don't know how many hundreds thousands of students you've had i'm one the question is is spiritual bypassing actually a normal an organic unfolding of the process in that you have to bypass your pain first to wake up and then you can have the awareness to now kind of engage with the process you just described? Well, I mean, it depends on the severity of the bypass. I mean, if the bypassing is repressive and down, you know, you're just shoving it down and refuse to see it, that's going to be an everlasting uh, irritant on your meditation because it'll keep coming up in different forms and you'll keep seeing that play out in different activities you do, et cetera, et cetera. So it depends on its relevance to your current consciousness. I. I don't say go looking for misery, you know, now when you're, it's not coming up in terms of its relevance to this moment. But at some point, it will all come up into relevance at this moment. So I don't think a premature uh, exploration of those things. In fact, usually what here, here's what I really think. I think that the meditation has a, a stabilizing influence on us over time which allows the stability of consciousness to handle these things at a given time, in its own time. And so to prematurely go down before that stability is there can cause trauma, can reinduce trauma. And I don't, I don't think that that's wise. If people start feeling the need to, that trauma coming up over and over again, then by all means, address it with a uh, a therapist as an experienced therapist and do but do it gently do it don't do it as something this is robbing me of my transcendence and just do it gently be gentle with heart do it with heart and curiosity wow this is amazing and then you reach a point where you don't want to go any for okay that's fine it's your time not the therapist's time i go at my speed not your speed and then it will become obvious when that becomes an interference as opposed to just something down there that you know is there that has to be addressed at some point. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I think timing, I know timelessness. Okay. Okay. So this is the paradox of those two worlds coming together, the time invested sense of I and the timelessness of our essence. But those two things do come together and there is timing to this. Where you, you have to listen to that. That's the patience. And because if you get too aggressive on it, that's you. And you're just going to cause more interference. You're not going to be helpful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I follow you. I appreciate that. Those are, and I just also want to be appreciative of you and your time. I, I, we, we booked an hour and I know we started early. <laughs> 
So we're just, <laughs> <laughs> I've stretched it, stretched, stretched okay. the hour. Um, my, my pleasure. I just, you know, I, it, it is so meaningful for me to have you on the show. Josh, it's been, let me just say how much I appreciated being on your show and appreciating you. And you, it felt smooth. And these things don't often feel smooth, you know, like, anyway. And I also appreciated your own verbalization of the process of your own sense. And given the subjects that were coming up, your own your own history. And you have a lot to share. I hope people that listen to you know that. Yeah, and well, I, and I want them to hear you because those that are uh, following along with me and my partner, um, my partner also did a few retreats with you, and um, just you've had an enormous influence on me, and 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 I I don't think I'll ever be able to fully articulate that gratitude, but um, it's th- that that first retreat sent me on a different course in my life, and um, and I'm still on that course. But I, I just want to just deeply thank you, Rodney. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for your time and having me on. Wonderful. Okay, everybody, live your life fully. Live your life fully. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Again, it was such, such, such a pleasure, such an honor to have Rodney on the show. And I really hope you enjoy the conversation and I hope it supports your practice. Do check out the show notes. There I link to an archive of talks that Rodney's given, and there's hundreds of talks to choose from on nearly every Dharma topic you can ever conceive of. Um, There's a list of his four books. I particularly recommend Stepping Out of Self-Deception or Touching the Infinite, both of which I have loved. I haven't read the other ones yet, um, partly because I've (laughs) reread Stepping Out of Self-Deception and and Touching the Infinite uh, a few times and, and find it find both of them just uh, exhaustive in, in the, the framework and the inspiration that they provide. So thanks so much for listening. Uh, I hope you are staying well. I know there's a lot going on right now, um, but keep your practice alive. Stay strong, keep practicing, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. All my best.